2: to episode 97 of See Here podcast. I'm joined as usual by my wonderful compadre and co-host Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Hello. Uh, We are not joined this month by our other wonderful compadre and co-host Mr. Tim Merrill because he's gone to a Brian Wilson fan club convention this month so um, we'll
3: have to hold down the fort for that. That's some ironic timing isn't it I guess that he should go and and go to that just as we're talking to who we're going to talk to. Yes,
2: we are going to be talking to another B. Wilson, but his name is Brent Wilson, not related to Brian Wilson. Now, long-time listeners of C here may remember that name because about a year and a half ago, I spoke to Brent while Bernie and Tim were unavailable. I was joined by uh, my friend and local doo-wop expert, Peter Merritt. We spoke with Brent about his excellent documentary, Streetlight Harmonies. I think you can watch that now on Canopy but search out for that one great history on Doo-Wop I really recommend that but his latest film is a documentary on Brian Wilson and I know what you're thinking you think, but aren't there a lot of other films about Brian Wilson yes there are but Brent has taken a different road he's taken he's taken a long promise different I can't make that work never mind his new documentary is called <laughs> Brian Wilson never mind his new film is called Brian Wilson a long promised road and we'll talk when we get into the interview about the approach that he takes but bernie and i are both uh fans of this film we highly recommend it even if you're not necessarily a long-time beach boys fan and why wouldn't you be so what we're going to do now is we're going to uh, play the trailer and we're going to be back in a moment with our discussion with brent and then we'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about what we have planned for next month on see here Brian just threw away the rule book, just took you out of where you were and took you to another
4: place. There was no greater world created in rock and roll than the Beach Boys. The level of musicianship, I don't think anybody's touched it yet. To dream up these textures that never existed before. That's why people say Brian's a genius.
3: You know, the rooftop is down. The story begins.
4: I'm a- the beauty of it, carries with it a sense of joyfulness, even in the pain of living. You
0: know there's something going on with Brian Wilson. There's no hiding that this man is troubled,
3: trying to escape something.
0: And
4: the pressure that comes with that, you know, the, the pressure to continue to be the person that people think you are supposed to be.
0: The idea of doing an interview makes Brian nervous.
4: And this is kind of where things got difficult for you, huh? Yeah. What was going on? I don't know. I was having mental problems.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we'll often ask if we can just take a drive and listen to some music.
4: Well, just like a lot. So this was all where the house was right here. Yeah, we can I don't get, out. get out. I just want to look. This should get better, really. There it is, look. There it is.
1: It <laughs> <laughs> marks the spot.
0: <laughs>
1: they said, "Go out and get a steady job."
4: The fact that he's that no still here idea. and making music—that's a miracle, kind so of, isn't it? I don't know how you do that. One, two, three. <laughs> get yeah, working I got this terrible feeling in my chest. You know, I'm nervous. You got this.
0: must have been a really exciting time
4: it was it was a trip to so so hard to
2: welcome back to episode 97 of see here podcast and Bernie and I are very very excited because we're speaking to mr B Wilson mr. BR Wilson all right <laughs> mr. Brent Wilson <laughs> Located okay, in Los Angeles, California, who has made a documentary about another B.R. Wilson, Brian Wilson film called Long Promised Road. Welcome back to C uh, here ninety seven, Brent.
1: Thank you guys, it's good to be back with you again. And as uh, yeah, and I like to say it's you know my middle name is actually now no relation, so it's Brent. No I've officially changed it. It's on my driver's license, and uh, yes.
2: Oh man, so I, I presume you're getting that a lot.
1: Absolutely. Every interview. The, the funniest one was Elton John. Uh, when I interviewed Elton, Elton was absolutely, he goes, are you Brian's nephew or something or one of Carl's kids? And I go, no, no, I'm just, just coincidence. And he goes, no, man. He goes, you've even got Beach Boy hair. You've got to Beach Boy and I took that as a very, yeah, that was a high compliment, I right. thought.
3: You weren't tempted to kind of ride that, though, uh, Brent, and maybe say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of related to Brian, and try and push it, see how far you could get.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I like get in a lot of restaurants now, that way. Yeah,
3: that's, that's <laughs> what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I do not. I've tried it a couple of times, but much like Brian, I am not good at it. <laughs> but I live here in the O... I live a block from the ocean, and I'm um, in Redondo Beach, and... Um, Uh, you know, the Beach Boys and that that lure of California and that, that myth of California was just a part of my youth. But I did. I grew up in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, okay. which is, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere.
2: A lot of good surfing over there, isn't it?
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, I remember, yeah, those, you know, all those great Beach Boys songs. And, yeah, talk, you know, they talk about the girls and the cars and you'd see the photos. And you're like, well, that looks like a pretty good place. And, and then there was the the Jan and Dean song, you know, what was it Surf City, you know, two girls for every boy. Two girls for to- every boy. God I moved and yeah, it was a big part of it and ironically I, you know I, we talk a little bit about it in the film. I think it's uh, Brian had a really big influence on a lot of people moving to LA and, and chasing kind of that mythic LA dream. He really did create I think a, a myth that's you know maybe not sometimes always true but it certainly is one that we want to believe in. So the last
2: time that you came on see here, I was joined by uh, my friend and local doo-wop expert, Peter Merritt. Hello, Peter, if you're listening, to speak about your earlier film, Streetlight Harmonies. And listeners, if you haven't caught that film, please do so. Wonderful film, but of course I'm biased because I have a passion for doo-wop music. But now you've gone and made this film about Brian, Long Promised Road. Uh, So obviously harmonies are a strong part of your musical, DNA. But I was sort of wondering, like, given that there have been so many films like Endless Harmony and the film of a few years ago, the biopic Love and Mercy, and I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, a documentary that was made by oh, Don Waz at the in the 90s, and probably a ton others I can't even think of at the moment, my obvious question is, why? Why would you be making another Brian Wilson film?
1: Uh, it's an excellent question, and those are all amazing films, and another one is... David Leaf's smile. Yes. Um, where yes. He did, yeah, where he tracked Brian, you know, uh, making beautiful
2: smile. dreamer or something like that. That was yes,
1: beautiful dreamer. Yes, you're right. yeah, beautiful dreamer. I mean, it's, so you're right. There are incredible films as a Brian Wilson fan, as a Beach Boy fan. It was funny. I knew all of these films, watched all these films, owned all these films, and yet somehow I still felt like I didn't know the man. I still felt like there was kind of this myth, right? There, there was this persona around, and I was still kind of fascinated to try to get to who was Brian Wilson. And I think the closest I had seen it, and I was really kind of inspired by, is the second half of Beautiful Dreamer, when David Leaf is actually following, it gets kind of away from the biopic of Brian, and then kind of starts, maybe for the last 30 minutes or so, start to follow Brian making the album. And I thought to myself, man, that would be incredible to see, you know, more of that. And then when you see the movie Love and Mercy, which is a, a beautiful film that's just heartbreaking to watch sometimes, the film it actually ends with him and Melinda reuniting. And they get back together and, you know, you get the sense that they're going to get married well, since that time, you know, Brian and Melinda did get married. They've adopted five children, and and Brian tours like 180, you know, dates a year. And I was at a show at the Greek, uh, the Greek Theater here in LA, and it was um, I was just a fan. My wife had bought me some nice seats, set, you know, right up front. Just was enjoying just the show, and it was Brian's birthday. And at a certain point, they wheeled out a birthday cake. And all of Brian's kids and all of Brian's grandkids surrounded him with a piano and the entire audience and and his family and band sang happy birthday to him. And I just kind of sat there with like a little tear in my eye thinking to myself, how in the world did this guy get to that point? You know, where this man was surrounded by so much love. He had gone through so much hell and had endured so much and now here he was in his seventies, doing something he was afraid to do in his twenties, and just surrounded by love. And I thought that's the film I want to see. That's the film I wanna. I want to try to capture. So I was arrogant enough to think I could do it. I tried and failed. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, right.
3: <laughs> I'm curious, Brent, uh, how you just went about getting it off the ground. Particularly interested in uh, in Jason Fine's involvement because. The film, in a way, seems almost like a a buddy pick with him and Brian. So uh, did did you approach Jason? Did Jason approach you? How did it all kind of come together?
1: Thank you for noticing that because I did. I, I consider it almost a buddy pick. Uh, sure, my, yeah. editor, my editor and I, Hector Lopez, we, we were sitting in the edit bay one day, and we kind of started talking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Lethal Weapon and, you know, kind of these great buddy picks, right? It mm-hmm. was like it kind of like started to kind of feel like that to us. But what had happened with Jason is I had tried a couple of times to interview Brian, and uh, they all went pretty poorly. Uh, you see one at the very beginning of the film. Which is, you know, where, you know, Brian tries to give an answer and he just shoots me down. Is that something you can explain? Is that something that's even explained? No, I can't. And then I spend like the next 45 minutes getting the usual Brian Wilson yes, no, I don't know, Mm. you know, so many journalists have experienced Then I I tried another effort where I, I surrounded Brian at the piano. We rented out Capitol Records, put Brian down at a piano and surrounded him with some friends and some members of the band. And I had them ask the questions. And that got a little bit better, but it was still not something that I could use. I still didn't have a film, but I saw enough of a spark. And then it was Gene Seavers, Brian's manager, who suggested, hey, why don't you talk to Jason Fine, Jason's editor at Rolling Stone. He's been covering Brian for years, and he might have some tips on how to interview Brian. Well, I went back and read one of Jason's articles called Brian Wilson's Better Days. And it describes spending a weekend with Brian, um, and they go to the movies, they go see the Wrecking Crew movie, they go get a massage, they go get sushi and have beers. And as I'm reading that article, I thought, you know what, that's the movie I want to see. That would be a great movie. And my partners and I, we approached Jason and Jason made the mistake of saying, I'll do anything I can to help. And then I pitched him my crazy idea to, you know, put these cameras in a car and, you know, not have any camera operators and just let those guys drive around L.A. and see what we got.
3: It works beautifully. It's fantastic. It's, it's a really sort of unique uh, sort of approaching a subject and, or a, you know, a person and drawing the stories out of him and stuff. And I, I think it works tremendously well. So for the listeners
2: who haven't seen the film yet, the film is broken up into segments of as we've just kind of said brian and jason fine driving around parts of la and jason using those locations as triggers for brian's memory uh to say what do you remember about this place what do you remember about that place and then asking other questions and brian is certainly he's hardly like a fountain at this point but certainly (laughs) as you say far more talkative than the monosyllabalic answers that he's given other journalists but yes it, this is friends and they're frequently saying things like
4: what do you feel like when, when you lived here and you were young married money writing hits what was that feeling for you very excitement exciting
3: happy groovy feeling
2: Hey, Jason, you're a real cool guy. You're a really nice guy.
3: It's so lovely, isn't it? It's so sweet.
2: So that is mixed in with, I guess, more conventional sort of documentary archival footage. There was actually one moment that really surprised me in a way. I think it was from 1976. And you see Dennis and Carl, and they're talking to whoever the journalist is. And Dennis is saying something like, We remember about the stuff that the three of us would sing as kids. And my father would weep tears at how beautiful we sounded. It was so touching to him. I mean, from all that we know, obviously, you know, Murray was not the greatest of fathers, but more the point that particularly out of the three brothers, Dennis's relationship with Murray was the most arduous. I don't know if he actually punched his father out or at least threatened to punch his father out. It was very, very fracturous. And the fact is, like at this point in front of the journalist, though, he's making out like, oh, yeah, all was nice. And that father hurt us. And how sweet it was so do you know at that time in like in the mid 70s was it not common knowledge to the music listening public about how bad murray had been to the brothers
1: it wasn't no yeah at, at that point it wasn't and it, it and you made a really great observation Murray's, because of all the relationships with the interviews that i did and I, of course i, I touch on it a little bit but I, I didn't go down the path as much as i could have But Mm -hmm. Dennis was probably the closest with Murray. They told me stories of how Murray and and Dennis would watch boxing on Friday nights. Dennis would go over to the house and watch boxing matches. And they actually had the closest relationship. But at the same time, Dennis was the one that probably took the toughest licks from Murray. Mm -hmm. Because as you can imagine, Dennis was probably the one that was probably going, screw you and you know, getting his dad to hit him harder. You can absolutely see Dennis standing up to, to Murray. So in, in some ways, I think he got it the hardest from him. In some ways, he, he was the closest with him and or sought out that love the most. And the biggest surprise for me as the filmmaker doing this film was how much Brian wanted to talk about his brothers. I never imagined that was gonna happen. And Jason and I, we we discussed really early on that we kind of took what we called like a Hippocratic Oath. We were never going to do any harm. If Brian didn't want to talk about something, we weren't going to talk about it. If Brian didn't want to go visit a location, we didn't go visit it. It was just we never wanted to hurt Brian. And and so I assumed that we weren't going to get that much about Carl and Dennis. And Brian just spends so much time talking so lovingly about his brothers. And uh, Jason and I have talked about it, and we want to believe that he just, of course, you know, Brian's a kid of the 50s and a very macho father. And he you, never said, I love you to your brothers. And they all came in very complicated relationships, you know, as business partners and as brothers And I just kind of felt like maybe Brian was trying to say something to Carl and Dennis that he never had the chance to say to him. And he talks about what wonderful producers they are. He talks about how much he misses them and how much he loves them. And it became as much a film about the boys as it Mm -hmm. does, I think, it does Brian. And that was something I was really surprised by. I didn't expect
3: that. I think it was uh, amazing that you were able to, uh, you were lucky enough to kind of catch Brian listening to pacific ocean blue not having heard it before saying oh yeah i never got around to listening to it and to see him and jason sat there listening to that and just the expression on brian's face and his eyes that was just pure magic yeah it was such an amazing thing such a privilege to be able to capture that
1: it was incredible i just standing behind the camera operator max my dp just standing behind him and witnessing it is just Mm. a person standing there was like one of those moments I'll never forget because you can you can see the pride on yeah on yeah. Brian's face, right? You yeah. can really see him. He's listening as a producer and he's like good. Good. You know, he's so proud of him. And yeah, that was a moment that uh, we didn't expect. As a matter of fact, I told uh, I our DP Max, we went back to the house, he asked to hear it. We went into the house and I told Max to say, hey, look, man, he wants to hear it now. Let's not bring in a lot of lights. Let's not bring in a tripod. I want to keep the mood going. I don't want to take 30 minutes to reset and all that stuff so that we can just, I want to keep the emotion and the vibe going. I said, don't even bother bringing in a tripod because I don't think this is going to last five minutes. I think he's going to get two minutes into this song, into this, and then he's going to—it's going to be too much, and we're going to shut it down. And poor Max stood there for an hour with that camera okay. on his shoulder because wow. Brian listened to every second of that whole album. And it, it was wow. it was a beautiful moment,
3: beautiful moment. That's a real uh, hair standing up on the back of your neck moment, wasn't it? Just yeah, absolutely. Tremendous.
1: i got to confess,
2: you know, when he said, no, never heard Pacific Ocean Blue. No, never heard the album. And and <laughs> I was incredible And like Jason, what came out of Jason's mouth is exactly what came out of my mouth while watching that. But it was, what, not even the River song? That album is is, is sort of like what... Elvis Costello did a song called The Other Side of Summer and it was like his answer to the whole Beach Boys mythos of sun and surf and cars and everything being perfect. But he's saying, well, there's a dark side to summer. And to me, Pacific Ocean Blue was like that one song, what Elvis Costello did later, but put into a whole album form. That album is dark. It's not something that Brian could ever have done. It's musically dark, Mm -hmm. thematically dark in points. I mean, I can imagine Brian being proud of what Dennis had achieved with that album, but did he ever actually sort of say to you, wow, this music is great. This song appeals to me. That song appeals to me. Did he talk like off camera later on about specific songs that appealed to him not
1: specifically again i think he was really listening i I got the impression that he was listening as a producer right like he would pick out specific moments where maybe there would be a chord change and you would see him nod his head you know so i i I got the impression that he was he was he was listening as a producer and because i think in his heart that's what brian Ryan always wanted to be just the producer, right? He never wanted to be the singer. He never wanted to be the guy out front. And and he always wanted to be, you know, just that guy behind the board. Nobody taught Dennis how to play piano. You know, nobody taught Dennis how to sing. He did it. He was all self-taught. And, you know, for even casual Beach Boy fans, I mean, Forever is a stunning Beach Boy song.
4: God,
1: just what we had. Mm-hmm. It shone that is all, Dennis. If you like forever, then yeah, you've got to listen to uh, Pacific Ocean Blue. And I was really honored, of course, and just so, just so blessed and so fortunate to have Taylor Hawkins. It's Taylor Hawkins' favorite album, and he, you know, Taylor really loved Dennis, and and it. It just breaks my heart that it, we just did a press release where the show's going to film here and is going to air here on PBS here in the United States, a public broadcasting. And, and the press release said the flag Taylor Hawkins. And it just broke my heart because he, anyone, I think he got that that Dennis wasn't the fuck up that everybody thought he was <laughs> you know that that Dennis was an artist and I know that Brian thought it too right I think you know everybody there's the rumor that he was going to call Smile was a dumb angel you know after Dennis just you know he was just his dumb little brother and he just I think more than specifically identifying with anything, it was just being proud the fact that you know, his dumb little brother created this incredible album and he was shocked, uh, shocked to hear it. Well, it was
2: interesting, like whenever it was 15 years ago when they finally did a really lovely re-release of Pacific Ocean Blue, they put out a second disc with what would have been Dennis's second album, but they never released. And at the end of that is Taylor Hawkins doing his version of Holy Man. His voice that is that lived in scratchy voice that sounds like Dennis sang.
1: He was like Dennis incarnate, wasn't he? And he showed up at the interview in his board shorts and his tank <laughs> top. And he looked like he just came from surfing. It, it, there was a little bit of a, I don't know, Dennis Wilson DNA in Taylor. And I think he recognized it and knew it, appreciated that as a drummer he had those artistic aspirations. And some of the things that he talks about in the film are just so beautiful. He gives such beautiful answers. Um, I was really surprised because, you know, the impression that I had of Taylor was like the goofball drummer, right? The high energy, just, you know, always goofing off drummer. And he just gave some incredibly beautiful answers. And uh, I'm really, really, really proud that that he's in the film And, and I miss him. I texted with him in December, and told him the film was done, and th- he goes, Did I make the cut? <laughs> what do you mean, make the cut? <laughs> that was his question like, Did I make the cut? And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, Yeah, dude, you made the cut. Yeah, we got to give more credit to those drummers.
3: Yes. Sure, in, yeah. In is, that yeah. right, Bernie? We're both retired drummers. I don't know if you're retired, Morris, but oh, I haven't played for a long time, <laughs> but in my youth, I did.
1: Maybe we'll do a Doc, Dennis, Taylor, Lee Von
3: Helm. Who else? Don Henley. Morris and Bernie. Yes, yes. Morris and Bernie. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. <laughs> Morris and Bernie.
1: Yeah.
3: Give the drummer some, yeah. Book okay,
2: you said that you and Jason took the Hippocratic Oath, but when Brian and Melinda would have signed on to say, yep, we agree to let this happen, was there anything that they said, or I, I guess maybe particularly Melinda, you know, being the one who lives with them, would say, look, don't go there, don't go to this place, whatever you do, don't bring up my Love. whatever, was there anything that they said, we trust you to work it out, or did they say in advance, please make sure that you don't go to these places?
1: Yeah. No, they never said a word. As a filmmaker, I would could never give an artist final cut. I could never give them say, because then it becomes a PR piece. I don't want to do that, and that's not fair to the fans. It doesn't do any good for the artist. It doesn't do any good for the fans. So uh, they didn't. They didn't have final cut. But you are nervous when they see the film. You know, there are some very sensitive areas, and you know, and, and some very some very deep moments. And, and you do get nervous that they are going to say something, and they're, they're not going to be pleased. Uh, but fortunately, there wasn't anything. They, they love the film. Uh, the kids, Brian's kids, love the film. I had their, their kids come up to me at a screening at the Grammy Museum, and uh, I've gotten to know the kids really well, and came up and gave me a hug and said, thank you for showing our father for who he really is. And so I think, more than anything, I think Melinda and the kids just appreciated the fact that you see all of brian you know you get those moments of brilliance you see the everyday pain that he goes through i mean Mm -hmm. brian struggles every day of his life with the schizophrenia the voices in his head with the fear you know with those pains it is a daily battle that never goes away and yet every day he finds a way to try and live and try and carry on and some days are better than others and some days uh, are are great. And I think we capture a little bit of both. And I think that was that was one of the goals I wanted for the film is that I heard that from a lot of fans that a lot of fans would say, Brian gives me strength. If Brian Wilson can do this, I can do this. You know, I heard that from a lot of fans. And so I wanted that to come through because he's terrified. You know, you see it, you know, he gets scared in the deli, which he's been to a thousand times you know he talks about getting nervous and being scared to go in to record in the studio with his band that he loves that he's done a thousand times and yet he gets scared and it's just that way for him every day and yet he finds a way to to carry on and so i think they appreciated the fact that we that we showed both sides but i was nervous you know i didn't want them to not like the film i wanted them to be proud of the film too unfortunately Fortunately,
2: they are. It's, it's interesting. So you bring up there the moment of him going into the studio. And Bernie and I are both of a similar mind where we have a problem with a lot of uh, scripted biopics because it tends to avoid the music. And just sort of only sort of go superficially into the music, but it's more about what happens, you know, in the bat, all the demon fighting and all that sort of thing. And one thing that I'm pretty sure we both loved about Love and Mercy was that whole scene where Paul Dano, who is superb, he really inhabited Brian is in the studio talking to the musicians, talking that bit with Carol Kay. Oh, I noticed that the cellos are playing this root note and I'm playing this. Does it work? Oh, yeah, it works in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it a try. And he's king of the studio. And you show in your film, it's almost like you sort of think studio bit because the whole thing is we as music fans, we want to know, show us a creative process. Show us something about what makes us love him musically in the first place. You go from that moment where he's saying, yeah, I'm I'm nervous. I'm nervous, Jason, I'm nervous. And he says, don't worry, you'll you'll crush this. I'm nervous. It's like you say when you go on stage, nervous for about two minutes.
4: Right, and then as soon as I hear California girls, I'm cool. You got this.
2: And then he walks in the studio... And all of a sudden, he's the king. He's saying to the drummer, no, start off with, with this pattern. Um are saying to the saxophone player, no, you haven't quite got that right. Do it like this. And he's king of the studio, just on this little bit. And Darian Sahanaja, you know, when when Brian is saying, oh, I think I'll go to the piano, he says, yeah, now we're talking. That bit of enthusiasm. And <laughs> Brian just kills it. I love that studio moment. Was there ever any time where Brian had said, no, no, the studio is my private domain. I don't want to show you that. Because uh, the film would have been a very different film without that bit with showing him performing honeycomb but but with it it just really sparkles i love that moment
1: thank you no and I, I'm, I'm like you guys i want to see the creative process and i i hate music documentaries that don't have music out. You know and i mean they don't have enough music we cleared 50 some odd songs i think for this film which is a lot for a music documentary it's half our budget is just clearing music, right. but it's important because you how do you do a music doc without the music? Well, you had
2: a lot of music to clear for Streetlight Harmonies as well, didn't you? The exact
1: same thing for Streetlight Harmonies, yeah, exactly. It's you know, it's a credo to me, it's a mantra. It's like, how do you have a music doc and not have as much music as you can possibly squeeze in? So it, we cleared a lot of songs and the songs that Brian plays and you know the songs that he picks in the car. But when he came to the studio, so Brian's not working on an album or anything, but I wanted to see that creative process. I felt it was important. How do I talk about Brian Wilson being a genius if I can't show him being a genius? And so it was very fortunate that our producers agreed to finance Brian recording and The other thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to record, I wanted to see Brian recording as if he had recorded in 65 or 66, which is the whole band in the room, right? Nobody does that anymore. As a matter of fact, you'll hear at the very beginning of the scene, very small in the background, you'll hear Blondie Chaplin go, it's about time we recorded like this. Because nobody, it's too expensive, you know, you can't rent these big studios, you can't fly in, you know, 12 musicians, put them up at hotels, you just record them one at a time into Pro Tools, or you pull some sample out of Pro Tools, and that's how albums are made these days. Nobody does it like this, but I wanted to try very hard to see what that interaction was like between Brian and his band in the studio. And uh, Wes, Brian's engineer, who's a longtime engineer. And you know, you see that, that room that we're in, it's Frank Sinatra's studio. You see that room, it's a huge room and it's a huge board. And Wes said, We maxed out every channel on that okay. board. And I think it's, you know, I don't know, 86 channels or whatever it was. And every one of them was maxed out. Everybody was mic'd live. Count them off one, two, three, four, and the band records. That's what I wanted to see because I wanted to see. If Brian had those interactive moments, would that spark the creative process? And I told Brian, I said, Brian, you record whatever you want to record. There is no agenda here. So he wanted to record Honeycomb. I've never even heard of Honeycomb.
2: Well, it's Don good life, it it's kind of funny how the Lord made the be and the bee made the honey. The honey looking called it honeycomb and they rode the
1: world and they gathered all of the honeycomb in the one sweet bar and the honeycomb and it's um who is it that sings the original jimmy rogers jimmy rogers yeah so he said i want to record this jimmy rogers song honeycomb and i i left his house and i i pulled it up on my phone and i'm like what the hell is this song? It's such a, you know, his Brian's version is, but you listen to the Jimmy Rogers version, it's just this kind of little sweet, I don't know, kind of really poppy tune. Of course, Brian does amazing things with it, but I'm like, why does he want to do this song? And uh, he wanted to do Long Promise Road. He wanted to do Johnny B. Good. For some strange reason, he wanted to do uh, Little Honda. I'm like, I don't care. You know, I'm like, you record whatever you want to record. And the band is here for you. The studio is here for you. The engineer is here for you. And we'll record whatever you want as long as you want. And so all of that to say is, was because I wanted to see if we could capture that creative process. And what you see there with that scene in Honeycomb is nearly real time. He comes in, sets down, starts, dish- he doesn't even say hi, right? If you notice in the film, he starts dishing out parts and teaching everything to everybody. Then he sets down at the piano, then he starts saying hi to everybody. <laughs> he's so focused the second that he gets in there. And then the way he's directing Paul Merton's a saxophone player, it was just amazing to watch how he came to life and brought that song to life. And- and what you hear is what you get. That is, we very little cut down on that. I think they did like three takes of it, and then Brian was happy, and I was thrilled to death. There was a moment where I was standing back, and I'm, I'm behind the camera operator, and everybody's recording, and uh, David Calcano, who's our art director, and uh, and did all of our graphics with us, and he's standing over here beside me. And I'm standing back there and I'm watching Brian record this song and direct this band and I'm thinking to myself, my God, this is exactly how we did it in 65. You know, I am witnessing something that very few people get to witness. This is a remarkable moment in my life just to be able to sit here and witness this. And I started to tear up a little bit, but the whole crew's around me, right? Grips and everything. And so I got to kind of do one of those fake, you know, kind of, you know, like I got something in my eyes. So that you know, kind of get that tear in my eye. And as I do that, I look over and David Calcano, the art director, has just got tears streaming down his face. <laughs>
3: I was gonna say, it, I'm, I'm I'm sure you weren't the only person feeling that way yeah, in that room.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, this yeah. tough grip is over on the ladder, and he's <laughs> yeah, it's he's choked up, and it, it was just a beautiful moment to see Brian do, you know, what he does, and that the you know what God put him on this earth to do and and do it so well and enjoy it so much.
2: You don't put it at the end of the film exactly, but it's sort of like a, a bookend because at the beginning of the film you show something what is presumably from like a good vibrations sessions, the archival footage, you know what they recreate in Love and Mercy. This is who Brian was back then and this at his core is who he is, who he still is. That
1: and that was the exact intention. Yeah, that was the exact intention was to to really almost kind of I didn't want to put at the end, because I wanted you to see it in the middle, but I, but conceptually, that was the idea. I wanted you to see Brian at the beginning in his prime, and then I wanted you to see Brian at seventy-eight, still trying to do exactly what he did, you know, at twenty-five years old, you know, and now at seventy-five, and, and doing it pretty damn well. It's a great song. We put out, we did put out a soundtrack with. Um, I think we cut and mixed five or six songs from that session. And uh, we put on like you know we we got to put a soundtrack out you know it's like we got to put these five songs out as a fan and I got to hear this and so I'm really proud of uh, giving Brian that freedom to just do what you want to do and and very thankful to our our producers for allowing us that you know that opportunity. To, to do that because it's 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 not the cheapest thing to do they do they just sit down now and pull something out of pro tools and call it okay. a day <laughs>
4: not as much fun well had yeah, the great caroline no it's one of the greatest songs in, in, in pop history as far as dealing with oncoming adulthood loss of innocence reckoning with the adult world and the terrible heartache that comes along with it.
3: I wanted to ask you, uh, Brent, you've got a, a number of people in the film you know, some very big names, famous, renowned people. You have Elton John and you've got Bruce Springsteen. Don Was is in there. Did you have to approach these people? Were they approaching you? Were Were there people that you would have liked to perhaps have brought in to speak to who you weren't able to?
1: We reached out to all of them and um, nobody said no. Well, there was a couple of people that said no for, for scheduling reasons. Sure. But, but the people that uh, that we reached out to... I didn't want a lot of talking heads, and, but what I wanted was a very unique list of talking heads. I wanted different genres, right? So. I want to, you know, so Bruce Springsteen is an American icon, right? Nick Jonas is 25, and he's an icon to, you know, to 20-year-olds and to Mm. 25-year-olds. And Elton John is is a British and international icon. And then Gustavo Dudamel is the world's foremost conductor, and he's the head of the L.A. Philharmonic and the Paris Opera. Jim James is the king of indie rock. Right. Mm-hmm. He's the banner that carries the banner for the Grateful Dead and that genre of rock. And so the idea that I kind of wanted to have was as if you're flipping the channel and you saw Bruce Springsteen and Nick Jonas and, mm-hmm. you know, Jim James together, you'd go, what in the hell do these uh-huh. guys have in common? And the only thing they could have in common is their love for Brian Wilson. And so and so that, that was the idea. And so. I wanted just this really diverse, fun list. The, the one that the got away, the one that I really wanted, and um, we just couldn't get it, was Bono. Um, okay. And, and the reason that I wanted Bono, we even told his management, but he was just, of course, you know, Bono's just one of the busiest guys in the world. But there was a story that I was told by his band that if I could just get Bono to tell that story, then I would have done the interview would have been done I just (laughs) wanted five minutes with him to tell this story that Darian has told me and all the guys in the band since we didn't get Bono I'll tell you the story so (laughs) Brian and the band were playing a charity event and Bono was playing it U two was playing it as well and as you see in the film, you know, Brian, every once in a while, you'll see Brian like in his leather recliner by the side of the stage. You know, he that's his, that's his world. Right. They fly this recliner, this chair around and he sets. He never goes to his dressing room and Brian sits in his chair. And, you know, he waits for the show to start and the World kind And that's his little domain. And you'll find him there from the minute he arrives until it's showtime. I guess the you, you know U2 was coming in and they were doing their sound check and Brian was sitting down in his leather recliner and Bono walks over and kneels down at the recliner so that he's eye to eye with Brian so Bono's on his knees and he tells Brian I am a huge fan of yours your music has meant the world to me and it is just an honor to to meet you and and if there's anything I could ever do for you please let me know And Brian goes, well, I could use a Diet Coke. (laughs) Bono got up and got him a Diet Coke.
3: (laughs) Oh, amazing. Wow.
1: And I wanted Bono to tell that story, and I couldn't get it.
2: (laughs) Any possibility you can get hold of him now and put it as a... Bonus feature on the DVDs. Exactly.
1: Feature, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bono, if you're listening, give us a call. We'll go to add it as an extra on the DVD. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure
2: Bono <laughs> is listening to see here. Isn't that right, Bernie?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm going. Yeah, I guarantee he is. Oh, <laughs> those guys! Was, I swear to God, Brent, he got up and got the diet coke. <laughs> Well, that was the only one that I that that we didn't get that I would love to have had.
3: Well, as I say, you you did pretty good anyway, Brent. That's that's a heck of a lineup.
1: You know, those guys were all so elegant in the way they spoke. Don is a producer. Um, The way he breaks down, you know, God Mm.
3: only knows. I, to, I tell you that the scene where he's uh, he's playing the isolated vocal tracks, the harmonies, it's yeah. akin to a, a religious experience, isn't it? It just stopped me in my tracks watching. You know, I, I know the song incredibly well. I know Pet Sounds. You cannot know the song, but just to hear that in its purest form, it's just breathtaking. It's breathtaking. That,
1: you know, it's one of those just you're so kismet, right? Just you know, good karma. As you know, mm. my camera operator's literally panning up. As Don hits the button and isolates the yeah. track, and he's panning up and he captures Don's face, and his eyes get big and yeah. his head shakes,
3: and he just There's has no faking break. that, is there? It's yeah, yeah just yeah, uh, that was a tremendous moment. That was the yeah, I, one yeah.
1: of those good karma moments where mm-hmm. the camera operator's doing exactly that thing, and yeah, when Don Waz says, I don't know how you do this. That's a that's a compliment.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: I thought
1: Bruce I love Bruce's his takes. You know, Bruce brought just so much, I think just understanding of the emotional aspects of Brian's songs. And then what I loved about Elton is Elton brought understanding of the technical aspects of songs. Like when Elton talks about he uses the fifth note of something and that's the exact thing I use on you know sometimes I have no idea what he's talking about right I know that's important to people who understand that and Bruce understood the emotional aspect of it and so I thought there was a great dichotomy there and then interestingly enough I thought you know Nick Jonas I was trying to find somebody. I caught a lot of hell for putting Nick in the film. I saw on the boards, you know, people were like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I can't believe Nick Jonas is in this film. What are they doing? And I caught a lot of shit. And, and I kept telling people, just wait until you see the film. Because what I was trying to do with Nick was I was trying to find somebody, anybody, who could understand what Brian went through. And it occurred to me it was Nick Jonas, right? So Mm -hmm. here was Nick, who as a teenager, 18, 19 years old, was in a group with his brothers making pop music that was unbelievably successful. And then as he got into his 20s, wanted to get away from that pop music and make a more sophisticated sound, a more adult sound that wasn't being received as well by the fans and wasn't being, certainly wasn't being received well by the labels. And then feeling the pressure to try to kind of recapture all of that. I thought, God, that's exactly Mm. what Brian did. And, you know, and Nick was talking about his brothers, you know, going, no, that's when Nick went solo for a while because his brothers were like, no, we got to stick to what works. And I'm like, Jesus, that's exactly what, you know, happened with with Brian. And so uh, and so I, I was really happy that we were able to get his perspective and And when he talks about the pressure of satisfying a label and satisfying your bandmates, I think he gets it. He understood it as well as anyone. And then Linda Perry, another amazing Mm -hmm. producer who just, anytime you can get that kind of insight into the music, I think, as a fan, I enjoy that. I I like that. I call it inside baseball, right? Like, you know, we're talking that inside baseball talk. I may not quite know what they're talking about, but I think it's cool.
3: The one thing you capture with all of them, the one thing they gave you, is they're all fans. And you said, you know, these are people that have sold millions of records and their household names and everybody knows them. And you get to see them being fans and talking about an artist they love and totally geeking out and... That's just great as well. That, that really comes across well. Thank Because
1: I geek out too, right? Like we geek out, right? I mean, sure. you, you're together, you're yeah, with your yeah. buddies, and you geek yeah. out about music and you geek out about songs and. I thought it would be kind of cool to see Elton John and Bruce Springsteen geeking out. You know, I just thought that would be kind of yeah. fun, make some more identifiable and more relatable. And I, yeah, I like that. I, I like it when they geek mm-hmm. out. And because that's, that's yeah. what me and my buddies do. You know, we geek out about stuff. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's cool that they do, too. <laughs>
2: A few years ago for my other podcast, I had the chance to interview Darian Sahanaja. It was actually on Brian Wilson's 50th anniversary of Pet Sounds tour and he came to Australia. So I was thrilled to be able to speak to Darian. And he told me a story about when he was a kid that he was, I think, walking home one day from the record shop or from school or wherever, and he had a copy of Endless Summer under his arm. And he was beaten up by local kids in his street because, you know, you like the beach boys, that shit seemed to be symptomatic. I don't know anyone else who was beaten up for who they like, but it was definitely a thing that, and it's like commonly spoken about in the biographies and all that that for a time in the 70s and going into the 80s the Beach Boys were desperately unfashionable you know they had the five six years of solid fandom in the in the 60s and and then it was like not just Uh, we've lost interest, it was actually embarrassing to say that you're a fan of the Beach Boys. Putting aside, I'm sorry, I'm going to say the abomination that is Kokomo, but that had nothing to do with Brian. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) insofar as Brian's own resurgence, and it is a huge resurgence, I like to sort of put it back to Don Woz's documentary, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times. It was basically saying, right, here I am, I'm married to this beautiful woman, I'm making music, I'm going to revisit a few old songs, and then I'm going to keep moving forward. Now, all of a sudden, it's like all the love that comes out. There was a live album that he recorded in front of famous fans. I think, I don't know if it's at the old Greek, but certainly in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, no, the Roxy. I yeah, think yeah. of the Roxy. Yeah, yeah. The Roxy. Yeah, the Roxy. Uh, yeah, the Roxy. And, and so, like... All of a sudden, unlike a lot of legacy artists, I mean, okay, there are some legacy artists, they still do what, you know, the the old hits, but really, it it seems like Brian is absolutely huge in a way that a lot of other people from that period couldn't have this second act in their life. So, this is speculation, but where do you think? It is that the fans, uh, people sort of came out and said, wow, this is actually really, really great. Where do you think that he got that second deck
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think it was Don Waz's film. I think it, was, it just wasn't made for these times. And there was that film and that album that kind of uh, brought a credibility to Brian and it brought up a, a coolness to Brian. That had been, you know, that had been missing for a long time. And look, I was just like Darian. You know, I was shocked. Kids were listening to Van Halen's 1984, and they were not listening to the Beach Boys. Instead, it was like, you know, I was that guy. I was, you know, I saw my first Beach Boy concert at 10. I thought it was the greatest experience in the world, and and I was shocked that every kid in school didn't love the Beach Boys. It was like, what do you mean all of the Beach Boys? It's the greatest band in the world. Who the fuck is Van Halen? I, what is that? <laughs> you know, I, I, so I I didn't get beat up, but I probably <laughs> would have gotten beat up if I carried my albums in. So I I know exactly what Darian is talking about. It it was not cool in, in those early '80s to be a fan, and and Jason. F- Talks about this. Jason, um, he loved the Beach Boys as a kid, but then as he as, as a teenager, you know, he got into punk rock and all that stuff. And then he, you know, went to work I think for Rolling Stone, and he saw the Don Was film, and it made him go back and re-examine Brian again. And uh, so I do. I think there was a, a, an element of that, and w- w- one of the things that I wanted to try to capture. And and try to do and an inspiration for me was was Johnny Cash and what Johnny Cash was doing in the third act of his life right you, you see him still trying you see him still Those recording American recordings, you see him, yes. mm. exactly that whole American recordings renaissance uh, that happened with Johnny Cash and that was an inspiration for me and Jason we talked about that a lot that you know Brian is having very much this maybe not as focused. As what was happening with Johnny, but certainly of that level. And when we shot a show at the Ryman, you know, the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville or something, I mean, it's just hipster central. That's the audience. And that's awesome to see. That's what you want is you want that next generation of fans to to come to to recognize this music and I'm really proud that we were able to capture this this act in Brian's life and for people to see that he can play the Hollywood Bowl you know with 20,000 people and Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be there, but yet there's going to be, you know, Jim James and, you know, and you're going to just get this incredible mix of, of people who are going to understand that this is a true artist still making great music. And uh, I'm, I'm proud that we're just a, a small thread in, in, in Brian's story.
2: So, to that point, one thing that I did notice as an absence from the film was there wasn't really any talk or well, much talk about albums like No Peer Pressure and Orange Crate Art or That Lucky Old Sun. Did Brian sort of not want to talk about those albums or where does he stand on like his latter day Renaissance albums? Does he ever talk about that? I
1: think there's three songs from Lucky Old Sun. Midnight's Another Day, Southern California, and there might be a third song. Like, I cleared like three songs from that album. I mm-hmm. love that album. I think it's, a, it's an incredible album. But what happened was what kind of, uh, and Brian, you know, Brian selects the songs. He, you know, he, he really likes that album too. You should go get the lucky old son. But there's some really good documentaries on the making of his albums. They're pretty recent and, you know, they're pretty available and they're really well-made films. I'd rather maybe see a little more time in the car or, you know, maybe see a little more time in the studio now. And so you try to kind of find the balance, make those choices. I had somebody come up to me in Nashville I don't know if he was joking or not, but he scared the shit out of me because he was like, I don't know how you make a Brian Wilson film and leave out Sloop John D. And like, you know, he was like this close. <laughs> it's like <laughs> and, and he's right, you know, it's criminal the th- songs that we left out because there's just so many amazing songs and and so much amazing work that Brian's done. But it just kind of comes down to choices and I wanted to make the film a link that it could be enjoyed by a general audience, right? I'm a Brian Wilson fan. I'm going to show up and watch this movie no matter what, right? It could have been three hours long. It could have been 20 minutes long. It could have been shit. It could have been brilliant. I'm going to watch it because I'm a Brian Wilson fan. I want to see what it is. But I never felt like I needed to get me as, as a fan. What I wanted to try to capture was maybe somebody who knows good vibrations you know heard Help Me Rhonda has heard God Only Knows in a in a trailer for a Pixar movie which you know just happened and they go oh I like that song I'll watch this documentary and then they come to understand the artist and so I think to kind of reach that audience you've got to make a film that can retain them so that was kind of a goal going in so I want to kind of keep it at that hour 30 uh, you know level but I could have made a two-and-a-half-hour film. I think my first cut was two, and hour, two hours and 40 minutes.
2: Can we see that version, Brent?
4: <laughs> Absolutely. I like this cut. Born between two oceans, it took a great notion. Hitch high, gone across this land. Raised
1: a monkey Broadway, I came up the hard way. Come on, Phil, and strike up the band.
2: the thing that the film does refer to and that a lot of people refer to as being the masterpiece at the time that wasn't appreciated pet sounds and the masterpiece that eventually saw the light of day in Smile but I think a lot of hardcore fans which people like us would appreciate is that well hell, you really need to be listening to albums like Sunflower and you need to hear Surf's Up and you need to hear Holland and the like so my question to you is, if you were to take good vibrations and the greatest hits and pet sounds and smile out of the picture, what's an album or a song, what's a favorite moment for you outside of the obvious, a deep cut or an album from the 70s? Even, not necessarily something that involved Brian that much. And
1: there are so many songs that just killed me to cut, but you're right, Sunflower and Friends are just astounding, right? I mean, they're just remarkable works. Is it Kiss Me Baby? I've tried so hard to get that song in. I wasn't really familiar with that song. I even asked Brian, why did that song not do well? And he goes, I just, it was, it was in this string of like 19 top 10 songs and it just kind of got lost. And it was like, it was stunning. It was a couple of songs from Holland, Steamboat, that I, I tried to get in. There is a, a, a period there from the, the, the early 70s, I think, that is pretty remarkable. I did get in, like I said, we you know, Brian, of course, selects Long Promise Road. Brian's the one that's picking the songs, and he asks to hear Trigger and he asks to hear Long Promise Road. And The Night Was So Young. The night was so young. Everything still, moon shining bright on my willow sill. I think of her lip, it chills me inside. And then I think, why does she have to hide?
4: Is somebody gonna tell me why, why she had to hide?
1: Um, he kept asking to hear and I wasn't particularly I'd heard it, but didn't think too much of it. And then the other one that completely changed my perspective was, as he does in the film, he kept asking to hear it's okay. In the movie, he asks to hear it twice. But over the 70 hours that we recorded, he probably asked to hear it 10 times. So I went back and like, well shit, if Brian's asking to hear it's okay this many times, I need to go back and listen to it again. Get it and then as you listen to it again now, knowing that Brian loves it, it gives you a greater appreciation for the song. And it's how you know the vocal trade-offs between he and Mike. You know, the lyrics that I think he uses as a mantra, gotta go to it, gotta push through it. And as you see in the film, he he uses that song when he starts to kind of feel troubled and he starts to get scared and and he uses it as a mantra. And so, you know, so that's a cool song that, you know, probably most fans like me, you know, maybe you've heard it, but, you know, I maybe didn't think too much about it.
0: Fun is it's no fear.
1: The other one was yeah night was so young and long promise road he just kept asking to hear those songs over and over again busy doing nothing i mean that's funny you know so i did i i i tried to kind of mix in i wanted to have those moments where you know we can tip the hat to the you know to the real fans and then also you know get the good vibrations and the god only knows and and those in there as well you got to try to what i wanted to try to find that balance Pet Sounds is is talked about so much and our producers and we we talked about it. It was like, you know what, as as much as it's discussed and, you know, it's Rolling Stones, you know, Rolling Stone does their list, you know, every like 10 years or so of greatest albums. And they did it 10 years ago and Sgt. Peppers was number one and Pet Sounds was number two. Then they redid it last year. They updated the list and Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On was number one. But Pet Sounds was still number two. There you go. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's that whole top 10. If you compare the one they did 10 years ago to the one they did now, the whole top 10 is completely different, except for the number two album, which is Pet Sounds. And so we did a, I felt like we had to do a section on Pet Sounds just for, you know, because people do love it and for good reason. And uh, you know, when spring scene talks about Caroline No, and Brian sings Caroline no. I wanted to do Caroline No live. We captured him mm-hmm. in the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And yeah. I loved hearing the voice of a 75 year old, singing that song now, almost looking back on love instead of looking forward to love and present in love. It was much more painful to hear him sing it now. And so that's why I chose to use the live version instead of the the studio version. It just felt deeper to me and I, and I love the fact too that in the film he still talks about he's shocked that god only knows gets a standing ovation every time <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> he says so he goes people stand up every time he's still surprised by yeah.
3: and I, Irv, it in some of the live footage he used he says thank you very much please sit down <laughs> and it's burning, please so be seated
1: yeah <laughs> one of my prized possessions that i got from the crew is I've got a t-shirt that says God only knows and then on the back please sit down <laughs> that was a shirt that the crew oh, made for
3: wait. themselves
1: only for themselves and they gave me one please sit down
3: because it so cool.
1: freaks him out. <laughs> it makes him nervous when people, he doesn't know how to receive that love. He's Yet. better at it now. He's much better at it than he's ever been. But at the end of the day, still, still not comfortable receiving love. And I think when he says, please sit down, it's because of that.
3: You know, Yet. he's just... Yet. And you can he's see embarrassed him. almost, isn't he? Yes,
1: yes. exactly. Yeah. He's embarrassed. Yeah, and, and you—I've seen him in concert twenty times, and the second that song is finished, please sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very
4: much. Please sit down.
1: <laughs> Every time. So no, there's nothing wrong with. Uh, yeah, it can never get enough uh, enough attention and enough love. Um, Cameron Crowe did some, some did some work with us and. He did some panels with us here in, in L.A. And of course, you know, Cameron with, with Almost Famous is a huge Brian Wilson fan. We were so honored that, that Cameron watched the film and gave us his thoughts. And then he interviewed Jason and I for some Oscar panels here here in L.A. And, uh, and he points out, if you're a fan of m- music, I think, you know, Almost Famous has always got to be one of your favorite films. Sure. And Cameron points out when William receives the albums, when his sister says, go look under your bed, it'll free your soul. And he goes and he looks under his bed and he pulls out her stacks of albums. Those are all Cameron's albums that he brought from home. And the first album, the album on the very top is Pet Sounds. Exactly Cameron, right. Yeah, exactly. That's mm. That says it all. Yeah, yeah, that says all.
2: Which would say a lot because at that time, it wasn't anyone's favorite no, album.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It just it just wasn't received well and it uh, it was just a little too much a little too ahead of its time which I think is kind of you know it was Brian's story right it was always just a little a little ahead of its time and it just so you know first listen you would go okay what, what is that and, and then you know if you do it a second and a third time and then you go okay now I know what's going on
4: here when you premiered smile how'd you feel I mean it must have been a big relief Well, it was was a big challenge to try to pull it off, you know? Right. But we did. We went over very well. The
2: nice thing that has probably been for Brian in recent years. He's got this new group of musicians. I mean, comparatively new, they've been there for 20 years, but in a couple of links to his early days, uh, he's had, you've already gone and mentioned Blondie Chaplin and God, I would have liked to have seen Ricky Fatah as part of that lineup as well. Just one of my favorite drummers, but also Al Jardine yes, being uh, being part uh, of this. Mm-hmm. When I saw him do the Pet Sounds thing a few years ago, Blondie Chaplin was, um, he sang Sail on Sailor and I can't remember what other song but it's almost like he thought he was at a Rolling Stones tribute show because he was playing the real rock star just
1: ripping it
4: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> That is Blondie,
1: isn't it?
2: Blondie and Ricky were only like there for maybe about three years or something like two, three years. But they're on that live album, The Beach Boys in Concert, which I have to say is one of my favorite live albums, period. The Beach Boys sound like a rock group, like a rock band.
1: Incredible live album for anybody who hasn't heard it. It's incredible.
2: I mean, a, a large chunk of that is because of Blondie and Ricky. I'm convinced. Actually, um Yeah. And, and with the, I, I think I read the story that the reason that they got them on board, were well, particularly Ricky was because Dennis in a moment of anger had gone and put his fist through a window and couldn't drum for a year. So he was just sitting behind the piano that got them that live album. And they did Holland and th- this song, which has got nothing to do with Brian, but a song called leaving this town this is town. one of my favorite beach boy songs. And it's got nothing to do with Brian. Yeah, but...
1: yeah. In the film and on the soundtrack, which I absolutely love and it was Brian's idea um you know, they sing Long Promise Road and it's it's Blondie sings the lead, he sings the Carl Park, and then Jim James comes in for a little bit, and then Brian always sings a tiny bit of just the chorus, but it's all blondie, and yeah, he just still kind of brings that rock vibe to it. And it was I was asked, I asked Paul, hey, how did you guys get Blondie? Back, Because that was the same thing. It's like he's, you know, there was a very short window in the 70s. And it's not something you would think like an obvious idea. Like, oh, let's get Blondie Chaplin to tour with Brian. And it was Brian's idea. Brian was like, hey, what's Blondie up to? And, you know, and that's kind of how Brian works, right? It's just like, well, anybody seen Blondie? What's Blondie doing? And the next thing you know, he's back out on tour with with Brian. And I think he's been out on tour with him now for eight, nine years or so. And, uh, yeah, it was Brian just, I asked Paul, I was like, how does that happen? He goes, where's Where's Blondie? Anybody seen Blondie? What's Blondie doing? <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> and they just get him out there. But, yeah, he does. He's It's an incredible band. Bruce talks about it in the film, and he says it. I'm paraphrasing Bruce. He thought when he saw Brian and the band doing pet sounds, he says in the film, I thought they were rolling tapes. And he goes, I swear to God, I thought they were rolling tapes. And then I go backstage and I talk to the band and I realize they're not. That band is playing that album with so much love and so much passion that it just blew Bruce Springsteen away how great that band sounds. I was so proud to have that clip in the film just for Brian's band. I wanted those guys to know, hey man, Bruce Springsteen thinks you guys kick ass (laughs) and if you get a chance to see Brian Wilson you're going to hear an amazing band and they're incredible
2: the way how I've always sort of gone and thought about it I mean because I know that like Brian sits on stage behind the piano and I'm pretty sure he's not playing the entire time he's just sitting there he picks
1: and chooses yeah
2: A friend of mine was saying, well, you know, he's just really sitting there. What's And I'm saying, you know what, think about any of the great classical composers. They can't be here in the 21st century to hear an orchestra play their work. We're getting a great composer here who every night gets to hear his work played by his personal orchestra. And that's privilege which us as a, 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 an audience gets is to watch the composer being given due respect
1: or you nailed it on the head brian said that for him it's it's just sitting if he could just sit on stage and listen to his band he would that would be his dream is to have nobody in the hall and him to just sit on the stage and listen to that band perform his music and then go back to the hotel and order room service. That would be his greatest dream because he does. He loves how much they how they play that music and he loves that band and he's at every sound check. You know, there's a lot of artists out there, big name artists that we all know that don't show up at their sound checks. And sure. Brian's at every sound check and he loves because he loves to listen to that band. And I I love that about Brian. I love that he likes his own music. You know what I mean? Like he asks to hear his music and you know, Mm -hmm. in the car. And he likes to hear it at sound check. And the cool thing would be to say, Oh no, I played that album once. I, I recorded it and I never heard it again. You know, like that's the cool thing to do. Like, oh no, I can You know, that album's shit. You know, I can do... I've done better since. That's always... I hear that a lot with directors who make films. They'll say, oh, yeah, I've never watched that movie again. All I see are the flaws. Brian's not like that. Brian loves his music. You know, it makes him happy, and he's proud of it. And I, I like that. I like that Brian likes his music and he likes to hear, it. he likes his band and he does. I mean, if you've seen, he's up there, so he's just lost sometimes just listening to the music, mm-hmm. you know, and he's just digging it and listening to the music. Like I said, if he, I think if Brian had his way, he would just sit in the middle of an empty stadium and listen to his band.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you've been very, very generous with your time, Brent. So I guess before we let you go, just final Question is, what do you have next? Do you have a harmony trilogy for us?
1: Yeah, I've got I've got a long list of projects that Jason and I are trying to do together um, that haven't quite come to fruition yet, but we're we're pushing on them. Uh, so hopefully I'll have something to announce. But I, I like the idea of of of, of capturing these artists uh, that maybe have not been terribly exposed. You know, pass on to a new generation that are incredible artists. Um, I'd love to do the Otis Redding story. That's one that, you know, is out there that is an artist that, you know, his life wasn't long enough and, you know, what he did and, you know, the, the music he left behind. And it it breaks my heart that that story hasn't been told yet. So if I had if I had one wish, it'd be that one. And, you know, we're not going to vote. We're going to keep working it, you know, see if we can make it happen. Uh, but yeah, oh, that's like that. I, I'd love to do some soul. I'd love to do uh, Sam and Dave. I can maybe explore a little bit of uh, a little bit of soul. You know one of the things, you know, not getting too much into the weeds is that you know the, 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 the music docs are more popular and you know you see everybody's rights being bought up, Springsteen, David Bowie and again you know, Bob Della and everybody's selling you know selling their rights. and so you've got fewer companies. Who are managing and owning these rights, and they're big companies with big overheads, and you know that makes it tougher. Um, you know, it's not cheap to clear these songs, and so that gets a little bit harder. But uh, yeah, anything worth uh, you know worth having is worth fighting for, particularly if you don't want them to be the PR piece, right? Like if you don't want them to, well, you know, we've seen them all, right? They're on Netflix every other month, you yeah, know, yeah. some. PR piece, you know, where they give you all access
2: and the sort of stuff that used to come out of a uh, bonus DVD that came with a reissue of a CD. Brent, this has been an absolute marvelous conversation. We've really had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your film and Brian and harmonies and we'd never got to discuss a deli, but never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, no, thank you so much, Brent.
1: Yeah, no, thank you guys. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Like I said, it's you know, it's like geeking out with with yeah, music fans. You know, how you know what more can you ask? If we just could have been drinking a few beers, that's the only thing we were missing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we do it every month, Brent. So uh, you're welcome back anytime. Even if you just want to come on and, and talk about a film you like.
1: Absolutely, I'd love to. go you know, I'm a I'm a fan of the genre. That's why I love your guys' podcast. Because thank yeah, you so I, much. I think Very that's, kind of you. Yeah, I, I think it's awesome that you guys shine a light on this genre and, and bring some respect and some credibility to uh, a, an art that is really difficult, but yet I think brings a lot of joy to people. I really appreciate what you guys do. Thank oh. you so
2: much yeah oh, you're very it's, kind thanks brent we're getting official acceptance from from uh, <laughs> the upper echelon of filmmaking bernie we we must be doing something right
3: i'm uh, taking us what seven eight years so we're we're getting we're, there <laughs> we're approaching we're approaching
2: our 100th episode brent in about three months 100 episodes which only took us eight and a half years to get to so
1: so here's what we should do for the 100th episode you should come to la we'll go to the deli we'll get brian we'll all go to the deli and do it Can there we hang out or,
3: with, uh, with Vanna White as well please yes exactly. yeah
1: Van <laughs> <laughs> we'll and Brian amazing
3: wow just <laughs> right. a funny scene by the way and that's great that's just again one of those moments that you're just like oh my god where did that come from so lucky to get well, that I was that was great
4: love with I love Vanna White
3: In love
2: it <laughs> and your one moment in the right. film Brent. Yes. Uh, yes don't worry uh, Brent's gonna pay for it oh Brent's gonna pay for it oh oh yeah. get something more to drink <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he's uh, so excited Mariah Wilson in a nutshell Excited that somebody <laughs> else is picking up lunch And then meeting Ben White
3: yeah. Wow.
1: Yep. Forget, forget about Bono. I just met ben White. <laughs> <laughs> well, Van
3: White. Did Vanna White give him a diet hope though? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: All right. No. Thank you so much, Brent, Bernie, and I will be back in a moment to talk with you about what we have planned for episode ninety-eight of C here. Once again, a huge thanks to Brent Wilson for joining us for this month's episode of See Here. The film is available on all the usual platforms. I'm not sure. forgot to ask him whether it's still got any cinema screenings around the States, but um, certainly you can get it on iTunes or any of the usual uh, video on demand type platforms. I hope it gets a DVD release because Bernie and I are old-fashioned that way.
3: Yeah, a nice Blu-ray with some extra features will be great. Yeah,
2: yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, huge thanks to Brent, and we hope that any of you out there who are been beat- Boys fans, go check out this documentary and hope you enjoyed our conversation with Brett. Absolutely lovely fella. So next month on See Here, we are having another director who we've had on the show before. Um, he came briefly on last month's show to talk about his documentary which he's been working on for 10 years hope it shows up about burger music war but he previously came onto the show to talk about his film ice pick to the moon a documentary about the conceptual artist and musician fred lane so we're welcoming back to the show Skiz Sizzik has gone and made a documentary, which I am so looking forward to watching, called Sound Mechanic. It's about a fellow called Neil Feather, who makes instruments out of found objects. I've seen the trailer a ton of times. Looking forward to actually watching the film. This looks absolutely amazing. and I love a different approach, a different sort of subject for music documentary. So that should be a whole lot of fun. Looking forward to having Skiz back, friend of the show, really, at this stage.
3: It's almost the fourth, I was going to say fourth Beatle, but
2: uh, but maybe not. they, They already had four. Uh, a fourth see yeah. here, a fourth Ian.
3: Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go with that.
2: <laughs> so if you want to get in contact with us, uh, you can send us an email, a good, good old-fashioned email, podcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups,
3: forward slash seeherepodcast. Instagram, we are at seeherepodcast, all one word. Follow us for the uh, occasional pictures and witty comments that I post.
2: We look forward to seeing what funny folks you have of uh, Brian on that? maybe ordering maybe ordering something from the deli perhaps
3: yeah or maybe just a picture of Anna White I don't know we'll see <laughs> <laughs> that is
2: where people think hang what's, what? what's how's this What? Uh, what? <laughs> all right so until next month we look forward to your company please be nice to each other watch some great movies and maybe watch some shit movies it's all good and uh, we look forward to your company again next month all the best cheers
3: cheers yeah.